Hello and greetings. We're so glad that you've joined us, and we're glad that you're interested in spiritual things. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. It is written in the book of Habakkuk, the third chapter, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Yahweh, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Yahweh, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timan, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand, and there He veiled His power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Yahweh? Was your anger against the rivers, or your indignation against the sea, when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in Yahweh, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Yahweh, the Lord, is my strength, He makes my feet like the deer's, He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. So this is the end of what is the oracle of the prophet Habakkuk. We don't know much about Habakkuk at all. We don't even know what his name means. It's a great name. It may involve a uh, Akkadian term for a fragrant plant, or it could be a from a Hebrew word meaning about embracing. Uh, from Habakkuk 1.6, where uh, God warns about the coming of the Chaldeans, uh, we 
take that to mean that he's talking about the invasions that will take place and 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 finish up with the destruction of Jerusalem in year 586. So it's imagined he lives somewhere toward the end of the 7th or perhaps the early 6th uh, century before Jesus. Now, there's an apocryphal story called Bell and the Dragon as part of the additions to Daniel where Habakkuk is seen as a contemporary of Daniel, which would mean that he would be on the later end of that toward the beginning of the 7th century, but we have no basis upon which to assess whether that story has anything to do with Habakkuk in real life. So all that we get is what we can see from the bird and oracle which Habakkuk sees in the first two chapters. And here in the third chapter, uh, this is a prayer uh, according to Shigianoth, that he's, he's familiar with the Psalms. He's warning Judah about the danger of the Chaldean invasion and, and the fact they need to practice righteousness and what God is going to do. Now, in the first two chapters leading up to this prayer, uh, we had a series of complaints and responses. Habakkuk first complains in Habakkuk 1, 2 through 4 that the land of Judah is full of injustice and Yahweh does not respond. So Yahweh does respond to him. And he says in chapter 1, verse 5 through 11 that he's going to do a terrifying work. He's going to raise up the Chaldeans to come to devastate and humiliate Judah. And so Yahweh, Habakkuk takes up his second complaint. He, he recognizes that Yahweh is holy, that Yahweh is too pure to look at evil, and so how can he use a more wicked nation to punish a more righteous nation? When will this carnage from, Bab, from the Chaldeans end? And so in chapter 2 we see Yahweh's second response, that the appointed time will not delay, that uh, there's one who has his soul puffed up, it's not right within him, but the righteous are going to live by his faith. Uh, woe comes to those who perpetuate injustice and iniquity, both individually and nationally, that it will be done to them as they have done to others, and that idols are deaf, blind, and mute, but Yahweh is in his temple, and the earth should be silent before him. In Habakkuk 2 and verse 1, when Habakkuk made his second complaint, he said he was going to stand at the watchpost to hear Yahweh's response, and what he was going to say himself in response. And when it comes to the idea of what Habakkuk's third response, his second response, is, it necessarily would not suggest this is a complaint, because we've moved to this place where Habakkuk is putting his feelings in this wonderful prayer that moves and stands in a great tradition of faith. And so this is a prayer set to Shigionoth. Prayer here is tefillah, a prayer or a hymn. And this is something not unknown among the Psalms. Uh, there's very important ones, a Psalm 86, a Psalm 90. We'll have reason to come back to Psalm 90. These are also called prayers. Prayer of Moses in Psalm 90. Uh, Psalm 86 is, is a prayer of David. A Sigianoth is perhaps a tune or a song, kind of like we have perhaps, you know, green sleeves, or if you look in many song books, uh, there will be somewhere in talking about the song uh, a word that is used, and that word is the tune. And so Shigianoth might be a tune uh, of some sort so that people would know, uh, oh, it's like green sleeves. Just like that, uh, oh, Shigianoth. And so they would know what kind of cadence or what kind of uh, tune or, or, or how it would be 
uh, chanted or sung or played. Perhaps it is just a strictly musical uh, interlude. We do not know any of that for certain. Uh, Shigianoth itself is nowhere else seen in the uh, Bible, although uh, Psalm 7, which is a Shigion of David, Shigion is a related term. Uh, both Shigayon and Shigianoth come from a, a Hebrew a root that comes from to transgress and to sin, and therefore people think that that might be relevant with implications for meaning, and it might be. Uh, maybe that has something to do with the tune and therefore the meaning, but the problem is we can't know. Just like there are a lot of songs out there that have nothing to do with green sleeves, but are put to the tune of green sleeves, uh, we can't be automatically sure that just because there's a certain tune name, that that tune goes along with... Uh, the, the subject matter. Uh, but it makes the most sense to presume that Habakkuk is writing this prayer in psalm form. And we're going to call it a prayer hymn because of tefillah, it's a prayer, it's a hymn kind of working together here. And it's a response to what Yahweh has made known to him in what we consider Habakkuk chapter 2. And so as we go through here, we get an interesting and, and exploration of, of how Habakkuk is, is making sense of all that God has made known to him and the circumstances as they are. And he begins by declaring his faith in Yahweh in verse 2, that he's heard the, Yahweh's reputation, he reveres Yahweh's work, and he wants that reputation demonstrated in his own lifetime. And he knows God's wrath is coming, but he wants God to also remember mercy. Now, the understanding of this verse depends on spacing, and this is where the, the, the parallelism becomes very important. Some of the older versions, you get the idea, uh, oh yeah, I have heard the report of you and I'm afraid, in, your wor- in the midst of the years, revive your work. That's a very different, uh, that, that kind of puts things in a very different place, just by that sh- shifting. Uh, the English Standard has probably better phrasing, oh Yahweh, I've heard the report of you. And your work do I fear, as and do I revi- I revere it. In the midst of the years, revive that work. And in, in the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk is declaring his confidence in God based upon what God has done in the past. And this is a uh, something we see f- frequently in the Psalms. In Psalm 77, beginning in verse 11, Asaph declares in the midst of difficult times, I will remember the deeds of Yahweh. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? And so he's talking about what God is doing. And... um, and what he has done in the past, and that is the basis upon which he has his confidence. And on the basis of this confidence, uh, Habakkuk is making his requests known to God, because he knows what God has done in the past, because he knows how great God is. He has uh, the confidence to ask, God, I want you to show that power again, in the midst of the years, uh, to make it known, to remember mercy, despite the wrath. He knows the wrath has been promised, the Chaldeans are coming, but he wants him to be merciful to his people. And the rest of the hymn prayer kind of follows the logic of this declaration. In verses 3-16 through we're going to see that Habakkuk's going to talk about what God has done, and he's going to 
talk about hope, hoping that's going to happen again in the future. And then in verse 17 through 19, that he's going to maintain his trust despite this adversity. And so the core of this prayer hymn is verses 3 through 16. And it describes Yahweh's powerful advance against the enemies of the people of God. And an expectation that he should do so again, eventually, against Babylon. That God's glory is described, coming down from Taman and Paran, his splendor covering the heavens, the earth is made full of his praise, it's bright as light, full of hidden power, there's pestilence, there's lightning, he measures the earth and strikes the nations, he overthrows mountains, and so Kashan and Midian tremble in fear. Verses 3-7. through And this is a, a modeled song. Habakkuk is modeling his praise on Moses' song of blessing. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 33, um, as Moses is about to uh, be carried to his fathers and to pass on, as he begins this this uh, blessing, uh, he says, Yahweh came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. Uh, he came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Again, we see uh, identification there of Paran as Mount Paran. Um, Taman is part of the south part of Edom, just like Seir there in Deuteronomy 33. Taman is part of Edom in Jeremiah 49, 7 and 20, Amos 1, 12, and other passages. Paran is only Mount Paran here and in Deuteronomy 33 too. Otherwise it's called the wilderness, the wilderness of Paran. And this is where, uh, the wilderness of Paran is up against the wilderness of Sinai. So when the Israelites leave the wilderness of Sinai in Numbers 10, 12, they enter into the wilderness of Paran, and it is adjacent to Israel and Midian, so that in 1 Samuel 25, 1, 1 Kings 11, 18, somebody can go from Israel into the wilderness of Paran, or from Midian into the wilderness of Paran. So it's in that area, modern-day northwest Saudi Arabia. Ancient commentators, and many commentators, take Kushan as a reference to Cush. Uh, from Genesis 10:67, we would call Ethiopia. But that's extremely far off in context. And that might be the idea that, you know, uh, everywhere from north Saudi Arabia all the way down to Ethiopia. But that seems kind of strange because he's, he's talking here about the Exodus and the wilderness. And so this far off. So Kushan just might be another one of the tribes, perhaps, uh, in the northwest Saudi Arabia area that would not be uh, too surprising in the parallelism. It's not a total contrast. It's just two different neighboring groups. Um... And, of course, we know Midian. They're the desert nomads who caused Israel to sin in terms of serving Baal of Peor, and against whom Israel fought in the wilderness in Numbers 31, and also Psalm 83 in verse 9. And so all of this is going on. They all tremble in fear. And so Habakkuk continues with this rhetorical question in verse 8. Is Yahweh angry at the rivers of the sea when he rode upon them in the chariot of salvation, that he unsheathed his bow and sent out many arrows? And with that kind of Evocation, of course, the answer is no, he wasn't angry with the sea, he was doing something else. Uh, he's talking about the striking of the Nile uh, in Exodus 7, 14-24, uh, the crossing of the Red Sea and the striking of that sea in Exodus 14, 21-15-21, and of course crossing the Jordan for the Israelites to get into the land of Canaan in Joshua 3, 1-17. Uh, he's, he's not angry at the bodies of water, but the nations. He's angry at Egypt because they have oppressed his people and they have denied his power. He is, he is angry at the Amorites because they have sinned. And, and we get this war imagery. And it's appropriate because in Exodus 15, 1-21, uh, Yahweh is, is praised in the Song of Moses uh, as a man of war, as one who has a gloriously triumphed the horse and rider has been cast into the sea. And so it, it's appropriate to have this imagery. And it's imagery. 
uh, of Yahweh in a chariot with a bow and arrow. And that he's fighting against the enemies, those who would uh, work against his people. We have the Salah here. We've had, it's not the first one. We have one in verse 3. Uh, it's very important Salah here in verse 9. Salah is something we see frequently in the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 77, for instance, the one that is often compared to Habakkuk 3. In verses 3, 9, and 15, you have a, you have a Salah. Uh, it's some, but it's nowhere else used outside the Psalms except here in Habakkuk 3, which shows you the close relationship between this end of Habakkuk and the Psalms. It is some directional notation for music. So, uh, if you're doing scripture reading, by the way, and there's a Salah, you don't have to say it. Just like when we sing songs, we don't say the DC Alfine or the Ritondo or some of the instructions. Uh, we understand the instructions are there to help us understand. Salah is one of them. The only problem is we don't really know what Salah means. It could perhaps be uh, a place for a musical interlude, uh, perhaps an elevation or heightening of the pitch, or of the sound, or as a rest. Uh, when I had done the reading of the passage, I indicated the Salah by taking a longer rest between sections. And especially if we got some kind of gap in the Salah, that it actually leads to some kind of break. It makes very good sense here, because verses 9b uh, to 9c, we have this kind of shifting going on. Only so much, uh, but a little bit of shift, because... Habakkuk then starts talking about what the creation does when Yahweh goes forth in battle. Rivers are divided, mountains become afraid, waters rage on, the deep gives forth its voice, the sun and moon stand in their place. Verse 9c through 11. And uh, again, we've, we mentioned that Psalm 77 is frequently seen as a, a parallel psalm to uh, what Habakkuk is doing here. And in Psalm 77, and in verse... 16, uh, Asaph declares, uh, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your paths through the great rivers, your, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And so we have there, and earlier we had read verses 11 through 13, the things that God has done for his people. And, and he's done all these great things. You've got the water imagery. You've got the uh, arrow imagery. You've got the way through the sea. You've got lightning. And all of it is leading the people of Israel by the hands of Moses and Aaron out of Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. And what is Habakkuk doing with that same imagery? He's talking about how God has led his people out of Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land. And so they're, they're using these descriptions to talk about God's victory over the natural forces, God's victory over the enemies of the people of God. And especially verse 11, with uh, the idea of the sun and moon seeing still. There seems to be reference to the events of Joshua 10, 12-15, when Joshua asks for the sun and the moon to stay still in Gibeon and in the valley of Aijalon, and Yahweh makes it so. And that's probably an illusion that's included. Also, uh, and it shows that Habakkuk does not just have in mind the exodus in the wilderness. That's not just Moses here. That God, God, Habakkuk has in mind what God has done to get them out of Egypt, to get them through the wilderness, yes, but also to conquer the land of Canaan through Joshua. 
uh, so it's a more long-lasting thing. On the other hand, it wouldn't be totally strange for the reference to exist there in a general way to talk about Yahweh's awesome power as he exercises it, kind of like in Isaiah 60:20, something similar to that. If, who can stop the sun and the moon? Uh, only God can, and he does so only because he is coming in power. And so Habakkuk now lays out what is going on explicitly. Yahweh marched in the world in fury. He threshes the nations in anger to save his people and his anointed. He crushed the house of the wicked, pierced the heads of wars with their own arrows. Those who had come as a whirlwind to scatter me, me being Habakkuk or Israel, as rejoicing and plundering the poor in secret, but Yahweh trampled the sea with his horses over the surging mighty waters. In verses 12 through 15. So Habakkuk does see the exodus, wilderness, and conquest as the example of God's deliverance and the trampling of nations in fury par excellence. But he also speaks of how God threats the nations to save his people and his anointed, which you could look at it perhaps as the, the, the high priest who was anointed. But most likely, and especially in the Psalms, the way of talking about the Davidic king. So you see, of course, in Psalm 2. Uh, the, 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 you know, the Lord and his anointed. So Habakkuk has in mind as well all of the times when Yahweh defeated the Moabites, the Edomites, the Midianites, the Amalekites, the Ethiopians, and so on for the sake of the king and his people, as you can see explicitly in Second Chronicles. And we also see that valence between the quote-unquote individual and quote-unquote national transgression here in Habakkuk 3, 14, S2, 6-16, that the wickedness done by the nobility of the poor will be quote-unquote repaid by the wickedness of the Chaldeans against Israel. Now Habakkuk is speaking of how Yahweh defeated the enemies of Israel who wanted to plunder her. And he does so in a way that evokes Judges chapter 5, uh, 28 through 30. One of the one of the great taunts of scripture this is the end of the song of Deborah talking about uh, the, the great defeat of Bara, of uh, Sisera and the Canaanites and she envisions in verse 28 uh, all of the women of, of Sisera's house waiting uh, and what they're thinking as the time goes on and Sisera has yet to return that out of the window she peered the mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice why is his chariot so long in coming why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots her wisest princess's answer indeed she answers herself have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Yahweh, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in the night. Of course, they're sitting there thinking, oh, he's, he's delayed because they've got so much spoil to go through and divide. It's taking them forever. When, in fact, he has been killed by a woman in a most humiliating way. And his, his army is scattered. And they have become a spoil and a prey for the people of Israel. And so it is here in Habakkuk that those uh, that, that air, uh, the heads of the warriors are pierced with their own arrows that they had come to scatter him to cause all of this problem, but they in turn are actually scattered. It's great reversal. And so he's, he's done this great description uh, of what God has done in the past. And he has... Uh, he sees his mighty power. And yet he now turns. Verse 16. 
and he has this very visceral description of his condition when he thinks about what's going to happen to his people. He goes back to that wrath. That his body trembles, his lips quiver, that rottenness enters his bones, that his legs tremble beneath him. Because he knows what Yahweh can do. He saw what Yahweh did against the Egyptians in, in terms of the history. He's, he's heard what Yahweh did to, uh, to Sisera. He has heard what Yahweh did to the Midianites. He's heard what Yahweh did to the uh, Amorites. He heard what Yahweh did to all these people. And now to hear that Yahweh is going to turn the Chaldeans against Israel. It's just awful. And so he, he suffers so viscerally, so physically, because he's so terrified of what's about to happen for his people. And yet, he will quietly for the day of trouble. If you think just the end of that, the day of trouble for Israel. But it's not to come upon the people who invade us. Because Habakkuk is getting through all of this because he's trusting in what Yahweh has just promised in chapter 2, that he will judge the Chaldeans just because of what they've done to the people of Judah. And he bases the confidence that Yahweh will trust the Chaldeans and the fact that Yahweh has already judged the Egyptians, the Canaanites, and so on and so forth. But he is very aware of what's going to happen, not just because of what Yahweh just said, but he is aware in Leviticus 26, 14-39, Deuteronomy 32, 1-43, the warnings about what was going to happen when if Israel was not true to the covenant. He knows. It's not going to be pretty. It's going to be awful. So Habakkuk is in agony, but he's also patient in hope. And he, he, but he comes out of this in this firm resolution at the end here, 17 through 19. And it's this almost ultimate declaration of trust in Yahweh. And this is the nightmare scenario for Israel. Again, we, we often like to think of Israel, uh, and, and we try to spiritualize Israel. And it's a very tempting thing to do because uh, so much of what God has promised us in Jesus is spiritual in nature and, and looks into the next, in the next realm of the resurrection. But in Israel, salvation is about the primary, the, the generation now. Uh, you, God has saved you when you are under your uh, fig tree and you, your crops are blossoming. You have seen your children and your children's children to the second or third generation. You do not have any hindrance from your enemies around you. Uh, when you have all of those things, you have been blessed by Yahweh. So... On the other side, what does it mean if the fig tree doesn't blossom and there's no f grapes on the vine, that there's no food from the fields, that there are no more flocks or herds of sheep and cattle? It means complete economic ag agricultural devastation. And that means there's no food, there's no hope, there's no future. Because those, a lot of those types of food are not just a single-time thing. They continually grow, and if they're cut off, there's not, even, there's not just no food now, there's no expected food in the future. Even if all that would happen, Habakkuk says, even if everything goes wrong, I will trust in Yahweh. I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. 
Because Yahweh is his strength. The Lord Yahweh is his strength, in fact. And he allows him to tread on high places. Now, at the very end, we have the, the choir master with string and instruments, which is uh, a direction for the choir master, for the, whenever, whoever's performance in the temple or, or whatever context. Because of this, it's been suggested that actually in Psalms, uh, a lot of times we see that at the beginning of the psalm, but that that's actually a misreading of the, of the copy all scrunched together. That, in fact, that instruction should always be at the end of the psalm that came before it. We can see that in Psalm 77.1, for instance, as well. Uh, Psalm 18.33 makes a reference to deer in high places as well, that same idea that that's a demonstration of security, that Yahweh is, con is the confidence despite everything. So this is Habakkuk's response to Yahweh, and it really exemplifies what Yahweh said in Habakkuk 2.4. Habakkuk knows Yahweh can and will rise up in terrifying fury to deliver his people, but in the meantime, despite this devastation, despite everything that go wrong, Habakkuk is going to take his joy and his hope in Yahweh, and he's going to trust in him. And so now we leave Habakkuk just waiting for the allotted time that the terror is coming upon the people of God, but trusting that those same terrors will also afflict the Chaldeans. And so that last section there, 17 through 19, I'm sure has been quoted many times as a declaration of faith. And it's very important because he's affirming for himself what God said in Habakkuk 2.4. Uh, but the righteous will live by his faith. He trusts that no matter what, God is going to sustain him and save him and be his strength. Even though he is very aware of the dangers and trials he may experience. Because he's going to continue to warn the people of Judah about their consequences of sin as long as he's alive, and he's going to suffer for it. And Judah may fall in his lifetime, and he'll see the fallout. And, and, and the fallout is famine, pestilence, disease, and crimes against humanity. And those are things he might have to endure and experience. And that is why we see in the New Testament that the faith is what it's all about in Romans 1, 16, 17, Galatians 3, 11, where Habakkuk 2, 4 is quoted. And the reason for that it's something that we see in, that Peter talks about. In 1 Peter 3, 1 through 9, he talks about the blessing that we have uh, of the hope in, in, of Jesus is, uh, laid up for us in heaven uh, that we're kept by God's power uh, for faith. Uh, by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he continues that thought later in chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So we should... Expect that our faith is going to have to be tested, that we're going to have to, uh, if we cry out, God, if everything goes wrong, you will be my joy and trust and strength. Well, what happens if everything goes wrong? Will God be our joy and trust and strength? And we should not be surprised at these things, Peter says. Um, 
And this is a very important uh, profession of faith for us to remember when we see all the headlines and the stories of fear and a desire to shrink back. That No, we need to trust in God and remain firm to the end to stand firm against the schemes of the devil in Ephesians 6, 10-18. And that we're going to suffer trials in our faith. And we're, things may not go well for us. It may not always be positive. In fact, we should not expect it to be positive. We should be concerned if it's always positive. Because that's how it works. And we should not be afraid because the one who is for us is greater than the one who is against us. And we need to remember that despite all the headlines. But why does Habakkuk maintain faith? It's not based on emptiness. It's not based on deluded, misguided hope. Because this section comes after verses 2-16. through That Habakkuk trusts because he has heard the report of Yahweh's works, and because of that, reveres him. And he recounts the exodus and the wilderness, and how Yahweh warred against the Egyptians and all who opposed his people. He loses the conquest, and, and, and how Yahweh defended the Davidic kings against the nations that stood against them. And because of that, he can be confident that as Egypt was judged, and as Canaan was judged, and as all those other nations were judged, Chaldea, Babylon, will be judged. And what God has promised will happen to them. So Habakkuk's hope is grounded in who Yahweh is, his acts of salvation and history, and he therefore trusts that Yahweh will do what he said he will do. And that is no different today. We can only have the kind of trust Habakkuk does, is if we are grounded and rooted in that same confidence that Habakkuk has in who God is based upon what he has done. And therefore, every expectation that his promises will be satisfied because he has done it in the past, he will do it again. And this is something that's not always obvious to the people of God. In Psalm 89 we have this very vividly illustrated. Psalm 89 is, is written by a guy close to my heart, Ethan, Ethan the Ezraite. So, uh, Ethan's had to stay together, right? And uh, Ethan is uh, going to sing of, of Yahweh's chesed, his steadfast love's covenant loyalty. Uh, he made a covenant with David. He talks about the great things, uh, how God has made things, how he is, he is, he is greatly powered. He does all these things. He, he, he talks about how wonderful Yahweh is, how great Yahweh is. And it's not faint praise. He has complete confidence in it. But he wants to understand at the end, verses 38 through 51. But you've cast off your people. You are so strong and so mighty, and you have covenant faithfulness, and you've made this promise of David forever, but now we were exiled, we may even be back from exile, we don't have a Davidic king on the throne, why not? We are a derision, we are brought low, how long will you hide yourself forever? Where is your chesed, your steadfast love, which you swore to David? Where is it? Remember it, please. And he has heard the insults of the nations. That his enemies mock Yahweh, mock the footsteps of your anointed. That's how it ends. Where is the promise? Where is the fulfillment? 
The psalmist ended book three that way, but then began book four with the prayer, the tefillah of Moses, like the tefillah of Habakkuk. And the emphasis of Moses' psalm is the greatness of God and the fact that our life is very short, but God lasts for so long. That 70 or 80 years of the years we have, they're full of toil and trouble. They're soon gone. But He continues on. And He lasts forever. And to Him, a thousand years is but a yesterday as it is past, a watch in the night, in verse 4. And there's this provision throughout book 4 that God is faithful to His promises. God will do it in His own time. And His time frame is not our time frame. And that is why in Second Peter 3, Peter picks up that same message that a thousand years is as one day and one day is as a thousand years. Why? Because in His day, people are mocking. Where is the promise of His coming? He points out, God judged the earth in the days of Noah. He points to the fact that God has fulfilled His promise. He will do it again. It's not slowness. He's being patient. The day will come. That's important for us to remember. God is faithful. We must wait. Habakkuk has responded to Yahweh as his prayer hymn, that he will trust no matter what because Yahweh is true to his word and judges those who persecute his people. But think about where we leave Habakkuk. We know what's going to happen. Habakkuk knows what's going to happen. But for us, it's almost 2,600 years ago. He might have had to wait weeks, months, maybe years, maybe decades. Maybe it didn't even happen during his lifetime. And so Habakkuk, we leave waiting. He knows what's going to happen. He just doesn't know when. In Habakkuk 3.16. Think about that for a second. So as we close the book on Habakkuk, a short book, I know, but as we close the book, we leave him waiting. He's waiting to see the judgment of God upon the people of Judah. And in a very real sense, even though it will definitely not happen in his lifetime, he's also waiting to see Yahweh's judgment upon Chaldea. And it is exquisite. Yes, the Chaldeans come and destroy Jerusalem, and they take away the objects of the temple, and they burn it all down. Exile the Judeans. Glory and vaunt in Marduk. But the time comes and they are overrun by the Persians. Their town is destroyed many times. It is rebuilt. But the time comes where the Greeks will build a capital a little bit up the river. It's Tessaphon. And the Muslims will center their empire up in Baghdad. And eventually Babylon becomes smaller and smaller. And it becomes a ruin. Covered over by sand. Waiting to be, re ex to be rediscovered and excavated in the 19th century by Europeans professing the name of the God of Israel. As we leave Habakkuk there, he's waiting. And we're waiting. 
we know what's going to happen. We know that their day is coming when the Lord is going to return with a shout, with the trumpet of the archangel. Uh, we will meet him in the air in the resurrection. We will come down. The judgment will happen. The wicked will go to the eternal condemnation, and the righteous will be in the presence of God and the resurrection forever. That day is coming. We just don't know when. So we are very much like Habakkuk. A lot's going to happen. A lot of trauma for, for a lot of people. But God is faithful to his promise. God is coming. Are we going to be ready for him? And are we prepared for him to come at any time? And that is why we need to maintain our faith in God and Christ to await his return faithfully, to stand firm for his purposes until he makes them manifest fully on the day of judgment and resurrection. We're getting so glad that you've joined us. We hope that you've been encouraged and benefited by our analysis of Habakkuk. If you have some questions about Habakkuk or another part of the Bible, maybe you just would like to talk about what it means to be a Christian or more about the Christian faith. Maybe you just need a talk or have a prayer request. Please let me know. Please contact me at the website at verbalvitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Perhaps you're interested in becoming part of the Venture to Christ, learning more about us, uh, seeing what we're about. Please find us online at venturechurchchrist.org or also on a lot of social media venues. And uh, we'd love to see you and have you participate with us in an assembly at any time. We again thank you. Have a great day.